All right, turn with me to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. When I started Ecclesiastes a couple months ago, the, the goal was always to end um, at the picnic. And I know that the picnic is not always the time to preach a long sermon. But again, usually it's 90 degrees and it's like low 60s. So we're just going to hang out in the text for a long time today. And uh, lunch isn't here yet, so it's all good. We're not in a hurry. Um, I've told you multiple times that the point of Ecclesiastes is to ask the question, what's the point? The whole book of Ecclesiastes is searching for meaning in life. And the author of Ecclesiastes, which is primarily the guy that identifies himself as the preacher, who we think is probably Solomon, but we don't know for sure. He, he's going on this journey of seeking out where is he going to find purpose? Where is he going to find meaning in his life? And it's a relevant question for literally everyone of all time. And so this is an Old Testament book that's confusing, that's hard to figure out, that is a little bit discouraging at times, not always super encouraging, but is so incredibly relevant for us as New Covenant believers in Christ to embrace and to grasp what is God doing here. And here we come in chapter 12 to the end, and we ask the question, okay, what's the point? We've gone through all of these weeks and there's been a lot of vanity of vanities. There's been a lot of all is vanity under the sun. But we've also reflected as Jason prayed that the truth of Ecclesiastes, the secret of Ecclesiastes is Jesus, is the one that comes from beyond the sun to break into the world under the sun, to redeem us to himself. And so the message of Ecclesiastes just completely transforms with the coming of Jesus. And that's really good news. So as we close uh, this series, I want to just direct your attention to the very end of chapter 12. The, the conclusion here is a little bit surprising, but it's also incredibly simple when you get down to it. It's surprising because there's actually multiple conclusions. And if you read through chapter 12 carefully, you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Because it almost sounds like there's two authors. Because if you read through Ecclesiastes, if you read chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, what I call the, um, the, the first conclusion or the foggy conclusion of the conclusion of what life is like under the sun. Here, the preacher is telling you, basically all is vanity. So do the best you can. Find joy, find pleasure in what God puts in front of you, but recognize that life is fleeting. So, so enjoy the moments you're in, remember your creator, and just live in response to him. But then, as the preacher concludes in verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Verse 9, it almost sounds like there's a different speaker coming in. Because in verse 9, it's not the preacher talking himself, it's somebody talking about the preacher. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So what, what do we see here? We see that in verse 8, the preacher is still talking, but in verse 9, it seems like there's somebody else. So are there two authors of the book? I think it's an important interpretive question. 
Are there two authors of this book? Guys, I don't know. But here's what I do know. That there is distance between verse 8 and verse 9. And here's why I think that's important. Because the preacher, likely Solomon, of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, it's like he wrote this, this last message to those young people that would come before, behind him. He writes it and he concludes it first in verse 8 with vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But then it's like he comes back to it later. And it's like he's a different version of himself, a wiser version of himself. And then in verse 9, he actually has greater perspective to reflect on the wisdom that he had gained. And so that's why I think there's actually three conclusions here in chapter 12. And you can read it and study it on your own. I'm not going to elaborate real in depth on that. But you look through 1, one and 8. Verses 1 through 8, there's one conclusion, vanity of vanities. And then 9 through 12, there's, a, there's another conclusion. Well, wisdom is beneficial. Wisdom is good, but only when wisdom comes from one shepherd, one source of wisdom. And then in verses 13 and 14, the narrator turns the, the reader's attention beyond the sun. The whole time, this preacher has been focusing on what is under the sun, and all is vanity under the sun. But it's like here at the very end, we get a glimpse of the bigger picture. We, we get the full story. And so while the wise conclusion in verses 9 through 12 is beautiful and meaningful, what is wisdom like? Wisdom is like goads. Just like a, a, a goad, a, a long pointed stick will, will urge on oxen and, and cattle in the right direction. So is wisdom urging us on in the right direction. Wisdom is of great use for us. Also, wisdom is compared to a nail in that wisdom holds us in place. Two functions of wisdom there in that conclusion to press us on in the way that we should go, but also to anchor us and to hold us in place when we should stay in one place. But the end conclusion in verse 13 through 14 is where we will focus our time. Fear God and keep his commands. That's it. Two points. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is what is most important for us to see in literally the whole book. So if you were confused by the whole book, that's okay. You just need the last two verses. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. After all of this, five words. Five words, two commands that reveal the whole duty of mankind. And in revealing the whole duty of mankind, what the author is here doing for us is revealing to us the purpose of life. So we started two months ago. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Here it is. Fear God. And there, there's probably no command in all of scripture that's more confusing and often misunderstood than fear God because it comes up all the time. But, but even more often than we see the command fear God is the command do not fear. And so it, it's hard as a, as a Christian to figure out what is happening in the Bible when God tells us to fear him or when the authors of scripture tell us to fear him. It happens more in the Old Testament, but it definitely happens in the New Testament too. So we can't just rule it out. What does it mean to fear God? How do we, how do we understand this when 1 John 4 tells us there is no fear in love and perfect love casts out fear? Should we really then fear God? It's such an important and vital command in Scripture, and we must wrestle with it. John Murray defines the fear of God as the soul of godliness. Jerry Bridges goes on to say that the fear of God is the animating and invigorating principle of a godly life. 
What he means by that is that, that the fear of the Lord actually urges us, like that prod, like that goat, the fear of the Lord actually urges us into righteous and godly living. But how can that be the case? Is it really right for us to be afraid of God? Jerry Bridges goes on to say, the fear of God compels adoration and love. It is the fear that consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship. It's the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. Okay, so lots of big words, but, but what does that mean? I'm, I'm just gonna try to keep it simple. We're, we're gonna talk about awe-inspired adoration. That's, that's what we're hitting on for fear. Because does the fear of the Lord encompass a little bit of what we traditionally think of with fear? Yeah, we, we, should, be, we should be concerned. You know, hell is a real place. And, and hell is not a, a dirty word as you're gathered together as the church. We should be able to speak of hell. We should be able to refer to the place of eternal punishment for those that do not believe. And so, yeah, there, there is a place in, in our understanding of God in which we should be so in awe of the transcendent and so in awe of his justice that we do fear that he is a God that does punish the wicked, that does punish sinners. Uh, and, and yet fear is more than that. Fear is not just that. In reflecting on the fear of God, we have to distinguish between what is the fear of a slave and the fear of a son. Because Romans 8:15 tells us the spirit of slavery that God has not given us, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but rather the spirit of adoption as sons so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. See, slavery fear hides from error in fear of condemnation from the master. But sonship fear is the sort of reverence and awe that sees the greatness of a perfectly loving authority and longs to live under that authority, knowing that the authority is good, knowing that the authority is out for our best. And, and the reason that we don't get this or the reason that it's hard for us to embrace this is the fact that each of us had fallen parents. And so the, the fact that, that each of us have lived under fallen authorities our whole lives means that all of our views of authority and, and awe and reverence and, and obedience to authority, all of our viewpoints are flawed on that. And, and anytime we talk about God as a loving father, no matter how great your father was, you're still going to have a little bit of a limited view. Why? Because your, your father was a fallen sinner as well. And so was your mother. So no matter how good of a picture they painted, they painted an incomplete picture. And so we praise the Lord for good fathers. I, I had one. And when I think of my father, I think of, of the awe I had and, yeah, kind of the fear I had in that I wanted to obey my father. I wanted to live under the authority of my father. And so when I stepped out of line, was I afraid of physical punishment? Yeah, sure, absolutely. There was a lot of physical punishment that went on when I was younger. But, but what about now? I think about now as, let me say it this way, even as an adult, the, the influence of my father, the approval of my father, ha has an incredible impact on me. To the point of however many people are here, it's great, I'm glad you're here, we're, we're opening the word together, but, but let's say that this church was, was 10 people. Let's say everybody here was just 
rejected and left and said, Tim, you're doing a terrible job. We're going down the street somewhere else. And there was only 10 of you that remained. If my father was here saying, Tim, you're doing a good job, you know that that would mean more to me than the rest of you, no offense. But that's the, that's the looming effect of a father. And I think some of you know what I mean, that when you have a father that loves, that affirms, that encourages, you don't, I'm not afraid of physical punishment from my father anymore, but boy, am I afraid of disappointing my father. Boy, boy, do I want my father to still be pleased in me. And there's a little bit of that in all of us in, in differing ways, because we're all broken and sinful and all of our fathers are broken and sinful. But, but when we look at God, we see a loving, perfect authority that, that is perfectly protecting us providing us is perfectly good for us longs for relationship with us and we get to live under that good perfect authority and yeah we stand in awe and we fear of of facing the father's punishment we fear of the, the disappointment of the father the disapproval of the father but we know that in christ the father is pleased with us and so yeah ecclesiastes we end with this statement fear god Point number one, fear God and recognize, recognize that sons of God do not fear condemnation from God. That's what the new covenant unlocks for us, that we do not fall into the spirit of slavery in our fear, but rather we recognize that while we still stand in awe filled reverence of our holy God, we recognize that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for, for us, fear as sons, is an awe-inspired adoration and reverence. It's, another commentator said it this way, the fear of the Lord is a biblical term for this sudden or either sudden or cultivated awareness that the presence of God and the revelation of God are the center of our whole existence. Do you know how freeing it is to recognize that you're not the center of the universe? That's actually a really good thing. All of our human hearts are predisposed to make ourselves the center of the universe, to think of self first, to think of, of my good, my comfort, my desires. But the fear of the Lord teaches us that we're not in the center, but rather he is in the center. And therefore, we live all of our lives in light of him. We live all of our lives in response to him. Every second of every day, whether you're gathered as a church and hearing the word of God or whether you're playing cornhole on a Sunday afternoon or whatever it is you're doing, we do all for the glory of God because he's at the center. And so that's what you think of when you see the fear of the Lord coming up in scripture, awe inspired adoration and reverence. And God is the center. God is the center of all things in your life and in all of creation. We must take care as we approach the fear of the Lord that we don't receive it as a commandment from men. Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah speaks to the people and says, The Lord says this, This people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. You've probably heard that before. Do you know why? Why is this people honoring him with their lips while their hearts are far from him? Look at what he says next. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Men are really good at teaching you what to be afraid of. We've learned a lot about that this last year. We are really good at stirring up fear in ourselves, in our own concerns, in society as a whole, and 
And we even, as the church, have the opportunity to stir up fear in people and say, you must be afraid of God. But the beauty of the gospel is that the fear of the Lord is not cowering in fear before a judgmental master, but actually receiving with joy the adoration, love, and acceptance of a Father who has brought you in, who has brought you near, who desires relationship with you so that you might be with Him in all eternity. And so we do not embrace the fear of the Lord as a commandment for men to control other people's behavior. That's not what we're doing here. We want to walk righteously and we want to, we're about to get to obedience here in a second. We want to walk in obedience, not out of a desire to control people's behavior, but out of a desire to glorify the one that lies beyond the sun, the one that is the creator of all things. So how do we live in fear of the Lord? We allow this awareness of God's grandeur and love lead us to adoration, awe, reverence, and then that compels us to loving obedience. And that's the next commandment. Fear God, keep His commandments. I'm telling you, the, the book is simple. Fear God and keep His commandments. Live in awe-inspired adoration and just do what He says. Do what God says. Jesus says it like this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you love him? Do you truly love God? Do you love Jesus, the Son who died for you? Do you live in response to the love that he has, has shown us on the cross by giving of himself for us? This is the conclusion. Love God by obeying God. Jesus said the greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. How do we do that? We walk in obedience to his commands. That's how we demonstrate the love we have for him. So, I told you, the conclusion is a little bit surprising because there's more than one conclusion. But by the time you get to the end, those last two verses, the conclusion is simple. How do you find meaning in life? By keeping God at the center and living in awe-inspired love with Him. And by just doing what He says, by loving Him to the extent that everything, literally everything, every decision, every work decision, every business decision, every family decision, every travel decision, every home decision, everything, everything is lived in the light of who He is in response to Him. And you know, one of the lasting effects that we're, we've all seen and we've all dealt with over this last year is that so many people have lost confidence in institutions and authority figures. And, and it's happened everywhere, whether it's governments, schools, businesses, even churches. And we've all had to respond to the challenges of not just COVID-19, but societal unrest and political differences. We've all faced all of these challenges together and nobody's responded perfectly. Nobody's hit that sweet spot and gotten every response right. We as a church have made mistakes. We haven't always communicated clearly over the last year. But, but in the midst of this, so many people have responded in just rejecting authority and saying, I, I, don't, I don't trust those authority structures, whether it's the government or it's, it's a school system or businesses or churches, whatever. Here's what I want you to see. I, I probably have told you before, I had a really good friend that when he started a church, he marketed his church as a church that you could trust. 
Because what he was trying to do is he was trying to minister to people that had been hurt by churches in the past. He was trying to, to reach people who the institutional church had left behind in poor decisions or poor leadership, whatever. And I always had a little bit of discomfort with what he would say. Because he would say things like, we are the church that can help you trust the church again. This is a church you can trust. And I always recognized that as a pastor, I'm not sure I want to say that. I'm not sure I want to be the guy that you can trust all the time. I'm not sure I want this to be the church that you can trust all the time. No, no, no. The authority is him. He's the one you can trust. And we're all in this journey together. And I believe in the, in the authority of the local church and the God-ordained leadership of the local church. It's a beautiful and important thing. But, but first and foremost, you don't need to trust me and you don't need to trust Fellowship Bible Church. You need to trust God as creator. And you need to live in response to him in the light of who he has said he is. That's where meaning is found. He is our object of trust. So no matter what authority or what structure in society has lost your trust, you can trust him. And that's what matters most. But see, here's, here's where it gets really uncomfortable. Because all of a sudden in verse 14, he gets a little real. He says, oh, by the way, he's also a, a righteous judge. And in the end, God will bring every deed into judgment. Every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so again, we're faced with this question of what is the meaning in life? And we're faced with the decision to make, this gospel decision. Do we want to face God on his throne on the basis of what we have achieved? Or do we want to face God on his throne on the basis of what Christ has gifted to us? That's the choice. Because every deed will be judged. Every human will stand before the throne of God and be judged for our actions. And in Christ, we have the opportunity to stand before the throne of God and have Christ the Son then advocate on our behalf and say, I shed my blood for that one. When I rose from the grave, Father, it was to purchase life for that one. That one's with me. That one's in union with me and therefore is righteous before you. That's what the gospel does for us. And so the book of Ecclesiastes gives us all sort of complicated stuff about searching for meaning and life under the sun. And in the end, it's far less complicated than most of the book makes it seem. Because the secret is to just not live your life under the sun. The secret is to live your life with awareness of the eternal son of God and him as the center. I read this week, the Christian life boils down to two steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one. <laughs> and guys, that's just it. This is the last sermon you'll hear from me for five weeks, and that's it. Go to Jesus. In an increasingly complex world that I don't always understand, and you don't understand, even if you think you do, you just go to Jesus. When I'm overwhelmed, I'll, I'll go to Jesus. When, when you're hurting, go to Jesus. When I'm tired, I'm, I'm going to go to Jesus. When you've messed up, just go to Jesus. When I've succeeded, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm full of joy, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm hungry, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm tired, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm full of doubt, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm full, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm angry, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm joyful, I'll go to Jesus. That's just a simple application. 
fear God, keep His commandments, run to the Son of God. And if you go to Him, His shed blood stands as an offer for everybody. Anyone can get in on this. All you have to do is receive the shed blood of Jesus in repentance of your own sin. Recognize that that tomb was left empty so that your life, your eternity, could be purchased. The God who sent His only Son to die on the cross as a payment for our sins is inviting you into life with Him into a resurrection life. And so as Jason comes and leads us in one more song today, that's the simple question. Are you going to accept this invitation to just go to Jesus? To fear God, keep His commandments, and go to Jesus? Because it's not through anything that we can do. It's only through what He has done in us. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll sing again.